last week we finished Ezekiel 13. So this week we'll start on Ezekiel 14. To remind you, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He has traveled back and forth in the spirit, but he is physically in Babylon. So when he's talking to people, they are Israelites who are in Babylon during the captivity. Previous week, he was prophesying against false prophets and against witches, women who were giving things like charms and and that kind of thing. And in so doing, they were misleading the people, both politically and spiritually, so that the people back in Israel, the land, were in the process of messing up quite badly and God was going to send them correction in the form of Nebuchadnezzar. So that's where we ended. Chapter 14 is a continuation of this. So chapter 14, then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. All right, now, the prophet is being talked to by God about things going on in Israel. Now you have the elders of the exile of Israel who have come to him in Babylon. Figuring out where what is is sometimes a bit of a chore. So back to 14 again. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idol into his heart and sets a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with a multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols. The next paragraph is going to be sharper. This sort of sounds like what he's going to do is he's going to talk to these elders. Next paragraph is going to say he's not going to. First thing to understand is what's happening in the entire chapter as opposed to just this paragraph. The other thing that's going on is obviously Ezekiel is a prophet. And one of the things about prophets is they have a genuine connection to God. If you remember Saul, first king of Israel, when Saul went quietly mad, he lost his connection to God and was completely at sea. And so he went to the witch at Endor and had her call up the spirit of Samuel because he had lost his spiritual connection. And the point of the exercise here is these folks depended on being able to connect with the spiritual realm. And the connections were genuine. So they will go to great lengths to get words from prophets and oracles. That seems to have been the case throughout the ancient world. So you had oracles on the Egyptian staff, you had oracles on the Greek staff, you had oracles on the Roman staff. So all of these ancient kingdoms had folks available to them 
who had genuine spiritual connections that they would go to and consult. So the elders of Israel are coming to Ezekiel because he does have a genuine spiritual connection. And so they are trying to find out from God what's going on. They are also involved in idol worship. Now, I think we've said this before, but there's two Jewish opinions on idol worship. You have Nachmanides and Maimonides. Maimonides, I believe, is the one from Egypt, and Nachmanides is the one from Spain. One of them was heavily involved in Kabbalah, and that's the one in Spain. The other one was a physician and was heavily influenced by Aristotle in Greek thought. So you had these two very, very famous rabbis in the 13th, 14th century. I mean, this is time frame we're talking about. But the point is, both of them say that you shouldn't get involved in the occult. But they have two different reasons. The physician who is influenced by Aristotle, who is a rationalist, says you shouldn't mess with that stuff because it doesn't work. The Kabbalist says you shouldn't mess with that stuff because it does work. And what you'll wind up doing is you'll wind up connecting to unclean spirits who will lead you astray and do you harm and take you away from God. Back at this time, before the crucifixion and resurrection, everybody had occultists of one kind or another available to him. Seers, oracles, witches, diviners, all sorts of people who could connect to the spiritual world. So these guys, these elders who are coming, are connecting spiritually with idols, which is to say they are connecting through unclean spirits as opposed to connecting through God. So while connecting through unclean spirits, they then turn around and come to Ezekiel, who is a prophet of God, and I don't know what they're looking for, I don't know what their questions are, but it's sort of like they're trying to get a second opinion, and what God says is, hey, you guys are connected through your idols and you're coming and talking to me. That's the essence of the conversation. So now we're all the way down to verse 6. We're in Ezekiel 14, 6. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. The idea of the Lord answering you himself is not good in this context. What the message is, is if you're going to come to consult with one of my prophets, you need to make sure you're not consulting with the occult on the side. Because if you are, God will know. And as he says here, I will answer him as opposed to giving my answer through the prophet. Now, he's giving this answer to them through the prophet. So the prophet is telling them, you're wasting your time coming here and inquiring of God through me because you are involved with idols on the side 
and God is not going to use me to talk to you. If he's going to say anything to you, he will do it himself. And typically the way he will do it is through somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. It's not like he's going to come to you in a vision and give you a dream. He's going to send you Babylonians or Assyrians or somebody else, and that will be your answer. That's that so it made sense. You all, of course, know your history. This is no mystery to any of you. The reason that these people are in Babylon is because of idol worship. And the fact that they have been exiled into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar on his first trip does not seem to have separated them from their idols. That is what seems to be going on. So now all the way down to verse 8. And I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, when God answers this guy who is coming to inquire of Ezekiel but is holding on to an idol, what's going to wind up happening is he's going to get cut off from Israel. Verse 9. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet and will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. And they shall bear their punishment. The punishment of the prophet and the punishment of the inquirer shall be alike. But the house of Israel may no more go astray from me nor defile themselves any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, declares the Lord God. The idea here is if somebody who is an idolater comes and inquires of a prophet and the prophet goes off on his own, sort of like Balaam, remember, Balak came and inquired of Balaam and God said to Balaam, no, you can't go. Balaam kept nagging him and finally got permission to go, but was told that the only thing that you can speak is what I say to you, and he, of course, eventually wound up getting killed in the process. Now, the other thing that this sort of implies, this is genealogy, this is a guess on my part. Don't know if this is correct. But the idea of an idolater coming and inquiring of a prophet, the way I infer from the way this is written, is the prophet ought to be able to tell that this guy is an idolater and so should not entertain his request for information. So anyway, this vignette that we have just gone through takes place in Babylon with regard to the elders of Israel who are also in Babylon and the reason that they are all there is because of idol worship back in Israel. So they got shipped off by Nebuchadnezzar. And as I say, they appear not to have abandoned their idols in that process. So all the way down to verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness declares the Lord God. This is going to obviously be a refrain that is going to be repeated for the rest of the chapter. So Daniel 1, 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasure. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge. So forth, Daniel resolves not to defile himself. I'm looking for a timeline here. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream. This is in Nebuchadnezzar's second year that he has this dream that Daniel interprets. Ezekiel here is prophesying in the sixth year of the captivity. Daniel gets given a new name, gets raised to be the chief, if you will, over all of the staff Seers, necromancers, stargazers, and all that kind of stuff. And that was at least four years in the past from where Ezekiel is now prophesying. Furthermore, God is the one who is talking. So when God says, if these three, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were there, so God at this point knows what's going on with Daniel. This is not something the prophet necessarily has to know himself. 14.12, let me read it again now. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. What's going on there? What we're talking about here, remember Sodom and Gomorrah and the negotiation that Abraham has with God. Wait a minute, what if there are X number of righteous men then? Will you destroy the place for their sake? And we finally get down to 10. And the point here is, even if you had these three spiritual rock stars there, Noah, Daniel, and Job, the only people they would be able to save from this calamity would be themselves personally. Speaking of which, I was listening to Ron Dart sometime last week, I think, I don't remember when, and he was talking about the idea of a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, and he was talking about it in the context of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And he's talking about the fact that they have the Nicolaitans in there and they have this woman Jezebel and so forth. And the idea there is these people are like leaven. And if they are allowed to exist in the church, that leaven will spread throughout the church, and the whole church will wind up partaking of their sin. Here in Ezekiel, the hope is if you have these three super righteous guys there, their righteousness may wind up pervading, but it doesn't ever seem to. It always seems to go the other way, which is why, by the way, leaven is a type of sin as opposed to 
good. I've heard preachers preach that leaven is the gospel, and the gospel is going out and doing good and so forth. I'm afraid I don't buy that. Let's go to 15. <laughs> if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and make it desolate, so that no one may pass through because of the beasts. Even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. And one of the things that happened with Lot, he was able to deliver his daughters, remember? And here, this has gotten so bad that that isn't even going to be possible. Verse 17. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I will cut off from it man and beast. Though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Verse 19. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. So you've got four things happening there. You've got famine. You've got wild beasts. You've got war. And you've got disease. That should remind you of something, by the way. Revelation. So I'm all the way down to verse 21. For this says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four calamitous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Now, this is a rabbinic way of speaking. You have these calamitous things one at a time. Then it says, how much more when I send all four of them at once? Is the phrase there. So, 21, for thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four calamitous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds, you will be consoled. For the calamity that I have brought upon Jerusalem for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. Now, what does this console you mean? The consolation here is God has not acted capriciously. God has acted with justice and in proper measure. So when these people who survive come out and they tell what things were like in the land before all of this happened, you can look at them and say, wow, no wonder God did that. It's sort of like Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and we know what they were doing so that when God finally does rain fire and brimstone on them and wipe them out, we can say, yeah, I, I, I can kind of understand why he did that. That's what this consolation is. You will hear the stories of what it was like, and you will say, yeah, I understand why that happened. 
These people have not been saved. These people have been left alive, but they have lost everything. They have been taken into captivity. They have been scattered to other lands. They have been enslaved. As opposed to Daniel, Noah, and Job, who would not be enslaved and so forth. The fact that some people do not lose their lives in this process doesn't mean that they've been spared. They've been let go to serve as an example to the others. So Ezekiel 15. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? So this is a rhetorical question. He's saying, look at a vine, and how is it better than anything else? That's what it's saying. Is wood taken from it to build anything? Parenthesis, no. Do people make a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Parenthesis, no. Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel, so at least it's not completely useless. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? In other words, even if you burn the ends of it and all you got is a little piece in the middle, is it good for anything? The answer is, of course, no. Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and has charred can it ever be used for anything? We're talking about Israel, Judah, that remains in the land. That's who's being talked about. So the whole point here is Judah has become in God's hand like a kudzu vine. Not talking about a grapevine, which is actually useful. We're talking about something like kudzu here. I'm assuming it's something like a wait-a-minute vine or kudzu or something like that. You all know what a wait-a-minute vine is? Wait-a-minute vines all over down south. And when you're walking through the woods at night on patrol, they have thorns all along the whole vine. And you walk through them and they grab you and you wait a minute because you've got to disentangle the thorns from your clothes before you can go on. So I'm thinking of that kind of a vine here. I'm not thinking of a useful vine like a grapevine. The scripture doesn't differentiate there, but the whole point is, Jerusalem has become in God's eyes like a useless vine. It is a nuisance. It's like kudzu growing in your garden. It's like bindweed growing in your wheat field. It's a vine, and it's just in the way. The other part of that, by the way, is one of the ways to harden wood is to char it. So, for example, primitive tribes would stick sharpen sticks in a fire and would harden the end of them to make a spear point. In Japan, they take wood and they char the outside of it as a finish. It not only serves as a finish, but it protects the wood from rot and a bunch of other things. So charred wood can be useful. Oh, you can draw with it too, absolutely. And what this is saying is even after this vine has been charred, it is still useless. You get the impression that this is not a useful vine. All the way down to verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, 
like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire will yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. The whole point here is faithlessness. Now, I'm not going to start chapter 16. It's a long chapter, and oddly enough, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. But it talks about Israel in the context of an abandoned baby girl and how God found this abandoned baby girl who had not even had her umbilical cord cut and had not even had the blood washed off of her from birth. And he cleaned her up, raised her up, and then when she became a young woman, he betrothed her to himself, and then, of course, she becomes a harlot. It's absolutely poetic and beautiful. Not a happy passage of Scripture, but a beautiful passage of Scripture, if I can say that so it makes sense. It's way too long to even start in 10 minutes, much less get through. 